know there's no need to worry and that is the truth I knew this was meant to be when I was just a boy Now our only mission is to sink into this joy and I want in my mind and I want Hello listeners and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. You're listening to a clip of Music in My Mind by Third Class, a band out of East Palestine, Ohio. Third Class is our featured Ohio music artist tonight, so hang out with us to the end of the podcast. We'll tell you a little bit more about them and let you listen to that entire song. But right now, let's throw another log on the fire, campers. Let's dig up a new Ohio mystery. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with me is our award-winning journalist, Paula Schleiss, who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories for the Acker Beacon Journal. Hi, everyone. So tonight's mystery is a tale from the Underground Railroad. You know what that is, right, Steve? Yes, that is uh, like where they would kind of ferry the slaves up north. Yeah, the the slaves that were escaping. Do you know where that term originated? Oh, I would have to say probably the south somewhere, right? Because that's where most of the slaves were at the time. Well, you would be wrong because legend and, and common acceptance in history is that this term was born in Ohio. So legend has it in the year 1831, a Kentucky runaway slave by the name of Tice Davids swam across the Ohio River with his old master in hot pursuit. Once in Ripley, Ohio, Davids was met by abolitionists who made it their business to help escapees complete their journey to freedom in Canada. And so Davids and his trail disappeared. Reportedly, when the angry slave owner could no longer pick up David's trail, he was heard to say, well, he must have gone off on an underground railroad. And the term stuck. Now, Ohio was filled with Quakers, abolitionists, and others who became conductors on that underground railroad. But just because Ohio was a free state doesn't mean everyone felt that way, especially in the southern part of the state. That bordered the slave states of Kentucky and Virginia. At the time, there wasn't a West Virginia. It was Virginia. And there were people who supported the institution, or at least supported the right of the South to have slaves. And so these benevolent conductors risked jail, fines, and more for helping slaves escape. They had to operate in complete secrecy, utilizing hidden rooms in their houses, barns, and tunnels. They transported escapees with wagons that had false bottoms, and they communicated with a language of secret codes that helped them move their charges from one station to the next. Tonight's story is a tale told in southwest Ohio that dates to the year 1849. That was a full dozen years before the start of the Civil War that would free the slaves. We know the story because a man who said he had firsthand knowledge of it 
didn't want it to be lost to history. And so he wrote about it for the Middletown Signal back in 1892 using only the name John. And here is what John said. In the city of Hamilton, maybe 20 miles from Cincinnati, one of the railroad's conductors was a physician, a kind and compassionate man who was also involved in politics and was well-respected in his community. That's all we know about him. John didn't share what his name was, though history has confirmed there were several conductors living in that area of the state. It was a summer night in 1849 when a large group of escaped slaves arrived at his home, 21 in all, tired, hungry, desperate men. The good doctor fed and cared for them, but there were so many it would be difficult to conceal them all in his home. He thought it best that he move them quickly onto the next station on the Underground Railroad, which was in West Elkton. He waited till nightfall, then loaded his guests into two wagons and headed north. They followed a dark and deserted road that wound along Elk Creek into Madison Township. But the doctor came to believe that they weren't alone on that road. He suspected that they were being followed by bounty hunters. And so, about six miles outside the village of Middletown, the doctor headed for a place that very few people knew about, a large cave, its entrance invisible to anyone who didn't know it was there, but a cavern so large that it contained a small water feature inside. The wagons came to a stop and the 21 people quietly hopped off the wagons and moved into the cave. It was cramped and damp, even a little cool for a summer night, but they would be safe and unseen. The cave was on the property of a Quaker family, and once the physician had his guests settled in, the doctor continued to the farmhouse where the sympathetic landowner lived. He knocked on the back door of the farmhouse, four slow, distinct raps that was the signal used by Underground Railroad conductors. The property owner and his family were in the parlor reading. The man got up, answered the door, and invited the doctor inside. There, the doctor explained what he had done. But the Quaker man gave a shocking warning. He said four years earlier, federal geologists had showed up wanting to investigate the cave. Four men went into the cave and never returned presumably killed by gas that was leaking in an inner chamber. He told the doctor he feared by the time they got back to those escaping slaves, they were likely to all be dead. And so the landowner sent one of his sons to go with the physician back to the cave. At the cave, the physician fell to his knees and said a prayer, fearing what he might find inside. Then he cautioned the landowner's son to wait outside while he stepped in. He called out to those inside, and when no one answered him, he held a handkerchief to his face and moved further inside. A few moments later, the physician emerged distraught. He collapsed, and when the fresh air sufficiently revived him, he cried out, They are all dead. I saw them, counted them, 21, all 
dead. The physician told the landowner's son, I alone am to blame and no one can share any of it. It was God's will that they should die rather than be recaptured and taken back into slavery. At least they are buried in free land and their graves on free soil. And so the entrance to the cave was sealed. Now John, the man who told the story, said it was his own father who answered the door the night that Hamilton physician came knocking, and that it was he, John, who accompanied the doctor to the cave's entrance that night. John said his father made him promise he would never reveal the location of the cave, and not even to share this story with anyone except his own children so that it might be passed on. But in 1892, when John was 67, he feared the story would die with him. He had no children. And so he wrote about his experience in a three-part series for the Middletown paper, leaving out the names of the people involved in the actual site of the cave. John wrote, I am quite sure that there is not a person living in your city nor in the county that no such a cave exists so near Middletown. John shared a few other details. He talked about how his grandfather had settled in the area in 1790, eventually purchasing the land that turned out to have the cave. John himself had been shown the cave by his father around 1826, he said, when he was maybe a boy of eight, but had been warned not to go in there. Even then, his father and grandfather knew there were poisonous fumes that needed to be avoided. John said when he was a teenager, though, curiosity got the better part of him. In the fall of 1842, he dared a peek. He said the peculiar entrance to the cave cut off all light, and he found himself in total darkness, even ended up falling headlong into a lake of ice-cold water. He said he scurried back out, vowing he would never go back in there again. John also told a little bit more about those geologists who reportedly died there. It was in 1845. John said he was about 20 years old. He said his father invited him to go to Cincinnati on a business trip. And there he was introduced to a couple of men whom his father said had come to examine the cave. The next day, they were joined by two more men. And John shared his story of slipping inside the cave and unwittingly getting that cold bath. He said the men seemed highly pleased and eager to explore this place. So 10 days later, the four men met John and his father in Hamilton, and they guided them to the cave. Apparently, at this point, the cave had already been sealed once because John said, and I will repeat this verbatim, we all went to work tearing down the stone walls and banks of earth concealing the mouth of the cave. This done, we went to work placing ropes, ladders, shovels, picks, axes, lamps, canoe, provisions, etc. inside the mouth of the cave. All being ready, the four men bade us goodbye and entered the cave. Before they entered, they exacted a promise from us that we would come to the cave every morning at sunrise for several days so that if they needed anything in addition to what we had already furnished, it would not delay their work. We bid them goodbye again and then departed for our home. 
We had gone away but a short distance from the cave when Father turned and looked back. His face was pale, and he began to weep and called to the men, Come back, come back. Oh, men, I entreat you, come back. We returned to the cave and called them again and again. It was useless to call anymore. They were out of the reach of our united calls. Father seemed heartbroken. I felt alarmed, fearing he would attempt to harm himself. He laid his head on my shoulder and wept like a child. And in a voice I never heard before, he said, John, the four men are already dead, and we will not see them again. The next morning, we made our visit and got there as requested at sunrise. We stood in front of the mouth of the cave, awaiting the appearance of one or more of all of the four men, but not one of the men came. We remained until near midday, but not one of the men had yet appeared. I determined to venture into the cave a short distance and call. I had taken but a single step when my father cried out, John, stop. The air we breathe, even here, is impregnated with poisonous gas out of this death trap. We made haste to reach the mouth of the cave, and I firmly believe we emerged just in time to escape death. We now left and started for home. And on our way home, Father made me promise that I would not enter that cave again. I promised him that I would not, and assured him that nothing could induce me to enter that death trap again. Anyway, John said his father was so overcome that John had to go alone to the cave to see if any of the men made it back out. He went back six mornings in a row after which and he and his father finally replaced the stones in front of the cave, hoping to prevent anyone else from discovering it. He never explained how that Hamilton physician knew about the cave. So could John's story be true? Well, the locals certainly thought it was possible. They thought there might have been some geological feature leaking natural gas, The story was revisited by a local newspaper in the 1980s, and it inspired all kinds of explorers in search of that cave. Even earlier this year, a local man and professional writer named Kevin Williams wrote about the legend for the website Atlas Obscura. He, too, went searching for the site. He wrote how he had met a retired high school principal in his 90s, a man named Donald Altstetter. Altstetter said when he was a boy nearly a century ago, he heard a local property owner talking to a hunter who had asked for permission to hunt on the property. The landowner gave him permission, but only if he promised to stay away from a designated area. If I find out you've been there, I'll never allow you back, he told the hunter. Altstetter believed that landowner knew where the cave was. And Altstetter himself remembered the general location, saying he had seen a spot where rocks looked disturbed. And so using the elderly Altstetter's guidance, Kevin Williams was joined by Chris Carberry, a local who had searched for the cave himself before. And they inspected a gorge and examined some boulders and scrutinized some rock formations. But after a day's work, they couldn't find it. 
Williams also interviewed several experts to get their take on whether the story was even possible, and some very smart, experienced, and educated people fell on both sides of the debate. Bill Addington, who does a lot of cave exploration in the Cincinnati area, said no way. He said Southwest Ohio features limestone bedding plains that are too thin to support the development of caves large enough for people to enter, let alone have a lake inside. Williams also called Kelly Barkley, the communications director for the Elk Creek Metro Park in Butler County. Elk Creek, if you'll remember, is mentioned in John's 1892 story. But she said no known map of the area, current or historical, has ever noted a cave. But on the maybe it could have happened side of the debate is a geology professor at Columbus State Community College, Jeff Richardson, who said there could be a crack or fissure in a rock that allows gas to escape. Even if it wasn't some full-blown cave, there might have been a crevice of some sort. And there was some support for that idea because in 1940, a family in the area was having a new well drilled when they hit natural gas. They started drilling a second location nearby and hit natural gas again. The man drilling set it on fire and burned for 20 minutes before going out. So, that seemed to be proof that gas was leaking out of the ground in the area. And then Aaron Hazelton, a cave specialist with the Ohio Department of Natural Resources, says subterranean caverns in Butler County aren't out of the question. She said caves have been discovered in the area, formed when carbonate bedrock is dissolved by water. And that it's possible that people who have tried to map the area features missed a cave. Tom Calicro, the author of several books about the Underground Railroad in Ohio, also thought the story plausible. And get this, in 1997, there was an official search for the cave. Cincinnati is home to the National Underground Railroad Freedom Center, and they commissioned a study to try and find it. They did field research and conducted many interviews, but their results were inconclusive. Marianne Olding, who led the study, said she spent days with archaeologists looking at a tract of land in Madison Township, and that while they didn't find it, she said, still, I think it seems believable. Middletown historian Roger Miller wrote about the cave in 2004 for the Middletown Journal. He and a group of men also searched for the cave in July of that year without success. Personally, I got some questions about this, though, because I think it's possible that John was actually writing a serialized fiction piece that others took too seriously. And here's why. The story ran over three days, and there were several discrepancies. Here's a big one. On one day, John put himself in the event, saying he was with his parents when the doctor arrived, and John himself went to the cave when the physician found that the escaped slaves had perished. But on another day, John wrote that his father revealed the story while he was on his deathbed, exacting a promise that John allowed the story to be buried with him. I read the story several times and just couldn't understand how both of those 
things could be true unless something was lost in translation. The copy of the paper I had to work with was faded in some areas, clipped in others. Not every word was legible, but clearly the story was convincing enough to lead to a century of exploration and debate. What's your thoughts, Steve? That's just, everything is so fascinating. You know, that, that whole thing is fascinating. I could see it one way or the other, but yeah, it's definitely possible that, you know, he was just writing a fictional piece. They did that a lot back then, and they didn't necessarily announce it. I mean, they, I, I think a lot of times they wanted their readers to understand it was fictional, but they didn't, they didn't put up a, like a editor's note saying, you know, here's a fake story. They would just start telling the story. So right. it, it's really hard. But I am intrigued by the fact that some really very smart, experienced and expert people have taken this serious enough to go looking for it. Mm-hmm. Well, let's add another voice to this debate. This is the part of the program where we invite an Ohio mystery listener to be an armchair detective. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress. Instead of perfection, you don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M. Com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Hey, hey there. there! I'm Hannah. And I'm Audrey. We are a sister filmmaking duo and co-hosts of Sleepover Cinema, our show where we analyze the films that created the collective unconscious of the girls, gays, and theys of the late 90s and early 2000s. Princess Diaries, The Cheetah Girls, Aquamarine, Cinderella, the one starring Brandy. We haven't stopped thinking about these movies since we first saw them, and we want you to rewatch them and review them with us. Are these movies as bad as critics would have us believe? Do we even care if they are? We are always unpacking that very question on Sleepover Cinema. Check out Sleepover Cinema wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcast.com. See you soon. Well, for tonight's Armchair Detective, we welcome back Michael Bonanno from Broadview Heights. Hi, Michael. Hey, Paula. Hey, Steve. How you doing? We're doing great. This is Michael's uh, third time, right? Third time. That's for right. So you did the um, the torso killer for right. us. And that really fun episode where you had discovered all these mysteries involving graves and grave markers. Correct. That was great. Well, I am excited to have you on for this one. What did you think about this story? Well, I, I think I'm kind of with you on it might not actually have happened. I, you know, as you said in the, at, the end of the, at the end of the podcast, there are about two different stories 
you know, one with the deathbed and one that he put himself in the story. So that I found a lot of other inconsistencies. I think that made me kind of think that it's, I'm not sure if it's really true. I, I, I had a problem with the dates and the, and the timeline. His, his, when he says he's a certain age and a certain year, they didn't match up. You know, I, for instance, in 1818, he said he was born, I'm sorry, in 1826, he said he was eight years old, which would mean he was born in 1818. But in 1845, he said he was 20, but he really should have been 27. You know, in 1892, when he wrote the piece, I believe he said he was supposed to be 67, but he really should have been 74. I mean, that doesn't prove that it's a myth that the story didn't happen. It's just another inconsistency. And as Steve says, it's throwing another log on the fire, you know? Yeah, that's right. You know, there was something else, too, but the copy wasn't super clear. It looked like a little portion of the story might have been cut off. But did you see the part where he was talking about his mom laying out a spread for some visitors and the visitors ate it and then it was time to go? And it kind of sounded like part of me was like, are these the men who brought the slaves on the wagons and now they're going to go back? Or did you run into that? You know what I, I'm talking I saw about? Part of it, it was hard to read part of it, like you said. So it was kind of confusing to me, too, as well. I'm not yeah. Sure. I wish I had a super nice, clean uh, copy of that so I could have put everything together, you know, chronologically. But it was kind of broken up the, the way the library sent it to me. Back yeah. in the 1800s and earlier... Boy, people just did not pay attention. For I bet those people didn't even celebrate birthdays. I bet a lot of people yeah, I, didn't even know how old they were back then. Yeah, I, I kind of figured that with being so long ago, he may have been a little inaccurate with those dates. So it could be that it, that's all it is. It just could another be. Thing. But you also then ran across that part where he's talking to his dad on his deathbed and his dad saying, I've got to tell you something before I die, but don't tell anybody else. And I'm like, wait a minute, why are you telling him your son's the one who went to the cave? And right. when the physician learned that those escapees had died. Yeah, you know, and, and real quick, just speaking of the physician, you know, a lot of red flags were nobody has a name here except for John. You know, there's a physician, there's a there's a landowner, there's four geologists or two naturalists and two geologists, whatever it may be. Nobody has a name here. I, I, I wondered, wouldn't anybody have come looking for these geologists? Four, four men die and nobody in Washington, D.C., where they were supposed supposedly came from, was concerned about them. Didn't they have family? I don't know. Yes, yes. No, you're right. How do four people disappear in it not, you know, make a bigger splash than that? You're right. And he said he said one of them was his friend, his father's friend. I mean, wouldn't you want to tell the family? I'm assuming he had a family. Maybe he didn't. But I can't believe out of those four men that none of them had families and nobody came, you know, asking what happened. And why wouldn't you report that anyway? Why would you keep that a secret? I just found that a little strange, too. And why why not give that doctor's name? If this story happened that many years earlier, I mean, I guess if the doctor was still alive in 1892, and I guess he could have been, maybe, you know, he was protect, you know, if it were true. But I didn't understand why he was still trying to hide that doctor's name. I mean, obviously, this was decades after the Civil War was done. It's not like the doctor would have been in harm's way. Right, exactly. That the other thing I thought about the doctor too was he was dropping off these 
21 slaves to the landowner, John's father, um, wouldn't they have already talked about the route? Wouldn't that, that cave have been mentioned in their plans in, in creating the, that part of the Underground Railroad? I, I know it was on his property, and I just think that he would have said, hey, if something ever goes wrong, don't use that cave. Obviously, the doctor was familiar with the cave. Hadn't they ever talked about this? I, I don't know. It just seems kind of vague. It's really strange. Yeah, I got the impression that the landowner didn't know the slaves were coming, but okay. but there is no explanation for how the physician knew that cave was there, because clearly the landowner knew that that cave was deadly. Right. So if he had told anybody about that cave, he certainly would have also told them there are skeletons in there. Don't go in there. Exactly. So, I think he would have told don't use that cave if you're ever transporting slaves. I don't know. I, to begin with, you know, when they first set up their underground railroad portion over there, they would have talked it out and, and he would have mentioned, don't bring the slaves into that cave. I, I don't know. I guess I'm maybe I'm, it's a little bit of a stretch here for me. Uh, yeah, I'm with you. I'm with you. I think it was serialized fiction, but boy, I'm just really surprised how many people have taken it serious and and have went looking for that thing. Yeah, they're, they're, that's another thing. How many times have they looked for this thing? Three or four times now and they can't find it? Hey, if you've got natural gas leaking out into a cave and it's enough that it's going to kill you within minutes of you entering, can you also take a lantern into that cave without that <laughs> the gas point. not like igniting or something? Good point. You, you, yeah, good point. You think something would have blew up, huh? Yeah, especially after I heard about the family who said that they burned it off for 20 minutes when they were, when they got national gas, I keep saying national, when they got natural gas uh, from that drilling. And it's like, how are you getting any light into that cave at all? If our listeners don't recall, you have a Facebook page called Too Late for Autographs, Ohio, where you visit um, cemeteries all over the state and tell these wonderful little colorful short stories about these people who most of us have forgotten about. And I know that you have had to have visited some grave sites of Ohio's famous abolitionists. So tell me, tell me where you've been and who you've visited. Okay. Well, if this slave, if this story is true, um, these 21 slaves, they probably, went through a, a man named Levi, Levi Coffin, an abolitionist in Cincinnati, Ohio. He was known as the president of the Underground Railroad. Um, and historians have estimated that he's, he freed probably 2,000 slaves, although Coffin himself thinks it was maybe 3,000. He's buried in Cincinnati in Spring Grove Cemetery. Went and visited him a few years ago. Uh, what years was he active? He was uh, in the 1840s. Um, he was in, Indi- in Indiana originally, and they asked him to move to Cincinnati. There were three like major ways to get through, so to speak, to get, get through up uh, through Ohio and into Canada. Um, three principal crossing points, I guess you might want to call them. Two in Indiana, one in Cincinnati. Um, he had a house that he turned into a boarding house, and he had slaves come through there, and he would his wife would make costumes or clothing for him. The lighter skinned uh, slaves would even pose as as boarding house guests, you know, as though, as though they were staying there. But they would transport them up through the rest of Ohio. So I'm wondering if this cave story is true, if these guys pass, if these slaves pass through Levi Coffin's uh, care, handling them. 
Well, the time frame certainly fits. Yeah, he was in the 1840s. Uh, he wrote a book about it uh, in 1876, and uh, it, it's like a, a firsthand account of, you know, historians love it because it's an actual firsthand, firsthand account of what happened. It's, it's a great historical reference. I have to read that. I did not know. What a wonderful treasure. Yeah, Reminiscences of Levi Coffin, I believe it was called. He wrote it in 1876. He died in 1877. When he died, uh, there were hundreds of people that came to his funeral. People had to wait outside. Four of his eight pallbearers were free blacks who were working with him on the Underground Railroad. Uh, when And when they buried him in Spring Grove, he didn't have a, a marker. Um, uh, the, the black community actually raised the money and put a six-foot-tall marker around his grave. So it was, that was kind of cool. You know, you brought up a, a good point there, and I just want to give credit. You know, we talk about Underground Railroad um, coming through Ohio, and we often think of white people being the, the conductors. But there were free blacks that lived up here that also were involved in the Underground Railroad. And I can't even imagine how much worse the risk was to them to be helping these escaped slaves. You know, as bad as, you know, the penalty might have been for a white person, I am sure a free black person involved in this probably faced even way more of a risk. Absolutely. I, w- I would have to agree with you 100% on that. And they know, I know they were involved uh, just doing the research. I can't remember any names, but they were, there were plenty of uh, African-Americans who worked with, with the uh, people like Levi, Levi Coffin and, and others to, to get the slaves through. You know, it, it, you're right. There were a lot of them. Yeah. So Levi, well, who else have you visited? Well, there's, I haven't visited. I should go visit. Um, uh, what's his name? I'm sorry. I'm losing track here. Um, John Brown. John, well, we could talk about John Brown. Yeah, he's he's not buried in Ohio. He's buried in New York. But John Brown's father, Owen Brown, is buried in Hudson, Ohio. Um, and he was he was a huge abolitionist, uh, really involved in the movement. Uh, Owen Brown was friends with Frederick Douglass. And when Frederick Douglass would come to this area to give lectures and speeches, he would often stay with Owen Brown in Hudson, Ohio, at his home. But Owen Brown, the father of John Brown, uh, worked with David Hudson, who founded Hudson, Ohio. They set up a way station for slaves to Canada. So he was he was really deeply involved in the movement in this area in Hudson, Ohio. Yes, I remember doing a little research on the Underground Railroad for a story once, and was just really surprised how many um, stops there were in the Summit County area that were connected to the Browns and the Hudsons. I mean, they had more than just their house. There were like several areas that they had, you know, their hands in. Um, right. Such big, big conductors in this area. Yeah, they're, they're buried in the same cemetery in Hudson. It's a really, really small cemetery. There's like three Revolutionary War soldiers buried there. There's uh, veterans of the War of 1812 buried there. And for such a small cemetery, the history there is amazing. Uh, but Owen Brown and, and David Hudson are very close, almost eh, not in the same row, but they're close together, buried in that cemetery. How about that? Where's John Brown buried? He's in New York. They they own land. The Brown family owned a, a land in New York, and when they, after they they hung him in Virginia, they uh, they transported his body to New York. He's buried yeah. in there in in the family plot. Okay. Owen Brown is is credited with with inspiring John Brown. John Brown got all his his inspiration from his father. He even actually made his first 
public announcement. John Brown did. He was a uh, there's a, a plaque or a marker at the uh, first congressional church in Hudson, and it says on there about of John Brown. It says at a November 1837 prayer meeting, church member and anti-slavery leader John Brown made his first public vow to destroy slavery. So his inspiration came from his father in Ohio, you know, and it led to all the the, the Kansas thing that he was involved in. You know, the, the polluting Kansas thing and then the Harbor's Ferry uh, raid all, all started in Ohio when he was living here. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad the facts from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of the new Medal of Honor podcast from Evergreen Podcasts, brought to you in partnership with the National Medal of Honor Museum. In each three-minute episode, we'll learn about a different service member who distinguished him or herself through an act of valor. We'll include stories from the Civil War to Iraq and Afghanistan, and from all branches of the military. We'll talk about service members who were overlooked for the medal at first due to their race or religion, and about those who were celebrated at the time. We'll hear stories of soldiers like Audie Murphy, future Hollywood star who mounted a burning tank to hold off German infantry in World War II. And people like Dr. Mary Edwards Walker, a Civil War Army doctor and the only woman to receive the Medal of Honor so far. Learn about these heroes and more wherever you get your podcasts. You know, Akron has a a house that he lived in, the John Brown house. So when this pandemic's over and you can do some touring again, you might want to come over. I think they give tours of that house. The John Brown house is diagonal to the house of Akron town founder Simon Perkins. So you can hit both of them at the same time. Yeah, I, I think they're remodeling the John Brown house or they were during this COVID thing. So it'll be ready and ready for your visit then. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Any other abolitionists on your uh, well, extensive list? You know, there's, there's John Rankin, but I haven't been down to Ripley, Ohio. He's buried in Ripley, Ohio. He's he's credited with uh, maybe 2,000 slaves, freeing 2,000 slaves. Um, he was a big deal in, in the southern part of the state as well. He actually went to Cincinnati when Harriet Beecher Stowe was there before she wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin. Um, he went there to give a lecture, and in it he described how a woman, a slave woman, 
crossed the partially frozen Ohio River with her two-year-old child in her arms and crossed over into Ohio, and, and he helped to, you know, to freedom through up to Canada. Um, Harriet Beecher Stowe heard that story and based her character Eliza in the book on this woman. So there was a connection there with, with Harriet Beecher Stowe and, and John Rankin, which I thought was really yeah. interesting. A lot of her inspiration, her inspiration came from when she lived in Ohio. She was really born in Connecticut. I think she's buried in Connecticut now. I'm not really sure. Um, but when she was here for the many, I think she was here for 12 years. She lived in Cincinnati. She would go across the river to Kentucky and, and uh, watch the slave auctions. And that really affected her. You know, and speeches like Ratkins that she heard and she heard from other people. And, and this all this information came while she was living in Cincinnati. So it's amazing that, you know, she came out and wrote that book and it, it made such an impact on, on things. Yeah, it really did. It was a game changer. And the, I, you know, I wonder if a lot of Ohioans know that the, the inspiration from Harriet Beecher Stowe's book came right here in Ohio. And as I asked Steve at the beginning of this podcast, do you know that Ohio was also said to be the place where the term Underground Railroad was coined? I read that in, yeah, did you put that in your piece? I think you wrote that in your piece. I did. I, we said it at the start of the podcast, and it happened in Ripley, which is where John Rankin was. So. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, it's crazy. This, circle. Yeah, Ohio's got a, a, so much history with the Underground Railroad. There, there is one other person that wasn't an abolitionist, but her name was uh, Lucy Bagby Johnson. She was the last slave to be uh, prosecuted under the uh, under the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850. Um, she's buried in Cleveland. She, just real quick, she escaped from Virginia, came up to Cleveland, got a job as a maid. Um, her master, her owner, came up and claimed her, and of course, the the they had to return her because that was the law. So he went back down. He his name was the slave owner's name was William Goshorn. He came up and claimed Lucy, took her back to Virginia. This was in 1861, January of 1861. The war broke out in April. A few months later, the, this guy Goshorn, who owned uh, Lucy, decided to join the Confederate Army, uh, and he took Lucy with her, with him. I'm excuse excuse me, took Lucy with him, and then he was captured in Tennessee. And Lucy was freed. She walked back to Ohio, ended up in Pittsburgh, married a guy there, came back to Cleveland in 1900, and she passed away in 1906. But she was the last slave to be to be prosecuted under that Fugitive Slave Act. Um, so there's what another another story. Yeah. I mean, Did somebody walk- write a book about her? Uh, I don't know. I'm sure there's. I don't know if there's any books about her. There, you can find all kinds of stuff about her online. And, you know, when she was buried, like Levi, Levi Coffin in Cincinnati, she wasn't she didn't have a stone. Uh, funds were raised, I think, through the cemetery. And now there's a really nice stone there for her uh, grave marker. Uh, but I'm sure there's I don't know if there's actually any books, but I'm, there's plenty of stuff online you can find out about her. Well, you be sure to send me those pictures if they're not too hard to find of you with those stones. And let's get them up on the website so people can see them. No problem. I can do that. I'll send them today, actually. Maybe we'll inspire some people to make their own pilgrimages to go out and recall these very brave, very brave people and compassionate people. Yeah, they put their lives on the line. Absolutely. Michael, is there anything else? Um, I think that's about it. I'm just going to have a few notes here. I was kind of looking over. Um, 
you know, everybody, I don't know if you want to put this in, but Harriet Tubman, you know, everybody knows about her, you know, and, and, and she did some wonderful, remarkable things. And she made 13 trips, freed 70 slaves, you know, uh, just putting her life on the line every time, you know, and, and, and the, but then you have the people like John Ratkin, who, again, who's grave, I have to go visit, and Ripley, who freed about 2,000, and Levi Coffin, who freed another two or 3,000. Um, yeah, I mean, the list goes on and on of people that, that helped with this movement. And like you said, black and white, and it's just amazing. The history is, is remarkable. Harriet Tubman's story, I don't, it, it's crazy. I mean, how does a black woman, she was making these trips from Canada to the South, and then back up to Canada, and then back to the South. She was personally leading these groups of escaped uh, slaves. I don't know how she could possibly have been that successful. That's and crazy. she didn't lose one of them. From what I read, she didn't lose any of them. She, wow. Everyone, yeah, she, now she, just as a side note, she participated with John Brown in the planning of the raid on Harper's Ferry. He had asked her to recruit black members for his regiment, so to speak. And so she went out and tried to recruit members to join John Brown in that raid. Um, and another side note of that was Frederick Douglass, you know, the really good friend of John Brown's father was opposed to the raid on Harper's Ferry. So it's really crazy how it all works out. You got Frederick Douglass opposing it. You got Harriet Tubman helping him. Nobody was sure what side to be on. On, in, I mean, every everything like that is a decision that's going to have repercussions. And you're going to have people who want the same outcome, but they're just not right. sure that's the right the right tack to take. Do you know if Harriet Tubman came through Ohio with her with her slaves? I don't know that. I, you know, I don't know that. I, I, yeah. I'd love to find that out. I didn't even think to research it. That's a great, great question. I don't yeah. know. Well, there's a lot to research. I have seen maps of the Underground Railroad, and boy, Ohio was just Grand Central Station. I mean, I just, you know, so many routes just cut right through Ohio. It was a Indiana. very, very big yep. part of it. Yeah, Indiana was a big part of it, Ohio, and, and then the western part of PA, I believe, was a big part of it. Um yeah, so I, I would love to know if she can. I would think she probably had to at least once. I mean, she she made 13, 14 trips, whatever it is. I think one of those had to be across the Ohio River right into Ohio. Maybe even Levi, Levi Coffin or, or Radkin helped her. I don't know. I'd have helped think, her. Yeah, somehow they, they might have been connected. I don't know. Good question. Well, Mike, thanks so much for joining us tonight. As always, you bring so much to our episodes. We really appreciate it. I really appreciate you having me, and, and thanks again. That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news, clippings, and more on this and every episode, hop on over to our website, ohiomysteries.com. And that brings us to tonight's featured Ohio musical artist. Third class out of East Palestine, Ohio, calls their style of music poetic pop. The group is made up of a trio Lee Boyle, Jack Boyle, and Pippi Parrish. And they were busy during quarantine. They released an EP called Reprise in April. The song we're featuring tonight is Music in My Mind. And Lee Boyle said the inspiration was his wife, Mindy, the beautiful, intelligent, strong muse who I can't stop writing about, he said. Be sure to follow Third Class on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, and check out their website, thirdclass.net. Well, let's have another listen to Music in My Mind by Third Class, and we'll see you here next week for another episode of Ohio Mysteries. 
Ohio Mysteries is produced by Stephen Yoder and Paula Schleiss. Special thanks to our Patreon and PayPal supporters. Thank you, Audionautics, Daniel Birch, and Adderin for the music. And of course, to all of you who support our show by listening and telling friends and family about us. You can find us on Twitter at Mysteries Ohio. You can find us on Facebook by just searching for Ohio Mysteries. We are also on Instagram at Ohio Mysteries. If you would like to be my second wife When you talk about our future lives It turns me on I was sure that part of me Was absolutely gone And I want you to be mine With the music in my mind And I want your breath in my ear You're sent to be here on my fingers Forever you'll linger and be Sharing journeys in our second youth I know there's no need to worry And that is the truth I knew this was meant to be When I was just a boy Now our only mission is To sink into this joy I want you to be mine You have entwined With the music in my mind And I want your breath in my ear You're sent to be here on my fingers This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.